Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) Welcome back to part two of Wuthering Heights. Last time we talked about a lot of things, but now we are going to keep talking about them. Yeah, we'll be talking about more things uh, at at greater length. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming back. I hope you enjoy this. Um, We ended up the last episode. We kind of figured it was a good place to break reading the passage the pivotal passage in the novel where Kathy says I am Heathcliff and lets us know the depth of the bond it foretells the tragedy to come because we know when she says that that Heathcliff has left and is gone so they have been torn asunder and as Heathcliff later says by Kathy herself Mm -hmm. and her choice to marry Edgar Linton instead of choosing to be, quote-unquote, degraded by marrying Heathcliff. There's a ton of foreshadowing in the passage, and there's a ton of the core themes of the book are all in the passage, in my opinion. The, in, the, in the passage, she talks about her love for Edgar is like leaves on the trees, and it will change. And she sort of points out that it's transitory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it will wax and wane, and, and the leaves on the trees, are, they're not very sturdy or stable, but her love for Heathcliff is like the foundational rocks underneath. And so her motivations, they're kind of, they seem kind of silly, or you're like dummy, you're setting yourself up for a lot of heartache and everything. She's, she's kind of has a clear idea of what she's doing to some degree. Well, I think we also should point out, because we've been talking about all this passion and the romance and everything, the romantic, capital R, romantic. Try to think back if you, you know, unless you're a teenager and listening to this, and then congratulations for being so sophisticated. (laughs) (laughs) But try to think back to being a teenager, because you've got to remember, Kathy, in this passage here, she's about, she's about, what, 17 or 18. She's a teenager. And Heathcliff is a teenager. And Edgar is probably in his very early 20s. Kathy and Heathcliff, they're teenagers. Try to remember what that was like. Because I was full of passion when I was a teenager. I was full of Sturm und Drang. I would go in my room and shut the door and play the same record over and over and over and lie on the bed hating everyone or yearning for Timothy Dalton (laughs) or whatever. I mean, you know, I'd get up and I'd walk down the street in a, just a in a cloud of my own uh, just just passion and pain at the world feeling the mist on my face wow that's totally. amazing I, well totally. and I, honestly i think that's why i didn't get into this book until now is because i wasn't that way no you weren't you were you were you were an edgar linton i was an edgar you're, linton you're, i'm romantic and you are enlightenment yes <laughs> and so it took until this point in my life when i'm like I've experienced some new things and like um, new like tides for relationships and I'm like I can relate okay I like I understand I understand Kathy's conundrum like I I passion yes I get it now well and also if you can link it and again take it out of the personal mm-hmm. and remember these are archetypal characters and I think she does as well they are the same on each side of the mm-hmm. equation they are they are a equation yeah Kathy and Heathcliff so we're not looking at the light and the dark the yin and the yang we're looking at two of the same and their power and agency which is amazing being like a man and a woman in this time Mm -hmm. period and everything you get the sense that between the two of them and their dynamic their power and agency is equal to each other you absolutely do because there is no point where he ever tries to lord it over her in terms of his place in society as a mm-hmm. man. I mean, he might try to get dominance because he just yeah. is a person. But he never exerts that kind of a force and oppression on her. Unlike Edgar. Yeah. 
unlike yeah. Edgar, who is conventional and he's linked in, into the convention. And even though he loves her, and he loves her very deeply in a very quiet way as well, mm-hmm. she is his wife and he owns her. And so he has a, a proprietary attitude toward her, which is not equal. In some essence, they are not equal. Mm-hmm. They have the man-woman kind of dichotomy at the time where she tries to have agency and she can bitch at him and be a naggy well, yeah. her, or her whatever. Her personality overpowers him, but that doesn't change the fact that he has the like ultimate power. Because of the status. And, and he's a magistrate, by the way, as well. Right. So not only is he uh, you know, the wealthiest man in the neighborhood, he's also the law of the neighborhood. He's the judge and the, and the sheriff of the neighborhood. So, so he's got a lot of status. So I, that's a really good point about that. And so they are an equation. And I think if we think of them as... Kathy and Heathcliff. Not, Catherine. Kath, Kath, Catherine and Heathcliff. As they're elemental, if we also think of them as mythological, which is something that I've been pushing for. Yeah, I mean, I totally understand why anybody who's looking for a human connection to the character is not going to like this book. I, 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 I do get that. But if we take them as being mythological, as being iconic, as being archetypal, if you want to take any of those words... And they are there up in in the heavens, if you will, shooting thunderbolts at each other like Zeus and Hera or whatever. Yeah. Then then you're you're looking at a explication of Emily Bronte's own inner psyche. Because archetypes are about our own inner structures in our personalities according to Carl Jung anyway so in a way these characters are like the contending forces in Emily and I think that that is very if you look at it that way it's very interesting to read it and I think it's why it resonates with me and with a lot of people who read it in that we are moved by the power of their connection and want that I mean, really, in as regular human beings and in real life, we don't want the Sturm und Drang. We don't want the fighting. We don't want the, you know, yeah. all the suffering and tragedy and everything. But we would love to have a connection like that deep yeah. with someone. To, to be that connected, then you're, you're really never alone. And in a way, Heathcliff never is alone, even though Kathy dies in this book before he does. He, he feels alone, but... We'll talk more about that later, yeah. too. That's the haunting. Yeah. So that's why, that's how I look at it. And that's one of the reasons that at least I look at Heathcliff. I want to be Kathy. And therefore, I can see through Kathy's eyes the attractiveness of Heathcliff. And frankly, I put a little bit of my own on him. I did see Timothy Dalton do Heathcliff first. So I had that in my mind. And so I had imprinted in my mind this very hunky character. <laughs> right. Showing sadness and tragedy and and you know feeling through his eyes so i was able to project that onto the heathcliff in the book so frankly the first three or four times i read this book i just ignored all the boring stuff that i didn't care about in the book such as nelly and joseph tedious beyond belief uh and actually the second half of the book was just it was okay I mean I only read it because I'd read the first half I wouldn't read it on its own I didn't think it was that interesting to me the first half of the book that's Wuthering Heights for me and that's what I care about and that's what I love so uh, absolutely I mean reading it I completely agree you could take the second half away uh, it's interesting that it's there at all and and let's just to be clear the first half is Heathcliff and Kathy together their conflicts Edgar and so on and so forth and then at the middle of the book Kathy is pregnant she goes into a passion she dies of her passion because Edgar and Heathcliff are tearing her apart right 
And then she gives birth, and it isn't postpartum infection that no, no, kills no. her. It's her will to live. <laughs> it's will, her will to live. And she dies and leaves a daughter, Kathy. And then the second half of the book is Heathcliff taking revenge on Edgar, the growth of Kathy, and the growth of, of the Earnshaw heir. Right. Um, and the outcomes Hampton. of all these characters and who dies when and everything. Yeah. yeah. So, and that, and you can see right there, we're both much, much <laughs> less captivated with that part of the story. Yeah. Okay, just wanted to clarify. <laughs> the second half of the story, too, is where you see a lot of the worst of Heathcliff as well. But you see the power of his yearning mm-hmm. and his desire to be haunted by Kathy and how Kathy does haunt him. And so, again, we bring in that extra paranormal. Right, so um, the beginning of the book, which we didn't mention, the character of Mr. Lockwood, actually, it does set us up for this to be, people describe it as a ghost story, and it's literally a ghost story. Mr. Lockwood is spent, ends up spending the night at Wuthering Heights. It's rainy and stormy, and then all of a sudden the windows bang open and he sees this ghostly vision. He sees Catherine as a ghost reaching in the window and everything, and he screams, and Heathcliff runs in, and he's like, where did she go? Where did she go? You know, certainly as a reader, you could ascribe that to being a psychological representation or a metaphor or whatever but it's actually literal in the book too that there are ghosts in the book and Kathy does not pass on and go to heaven or hell or wherever she's destined for she stays and haunts Heathcliff and she stays on the moors which in again in the pivotal scene in the book we read last time she said she had a dream that she did not want to be in heaven even if she could go to heaven Mm -hmm. she wanted to stay on the moors and of course that's what Heathcliff wants as well they simply want to become part of that bedrock of the moors forever and so her dream becomes literal (laughs) exactly exactly which is a really kind of a brilliant way to bring it around I I think think, to tie it to really tie it through that element even though yeah the story and the narrative arc and so forth she does a fine job with that very conventionally this is the almost the non-conventional version of it emily was raised her father was a whatever they call it i'm sorry reverend in the church of england a priest in the church of england he was a religious not enlightened religious man emily can you imagine she was raised as a christian woman in the victorian times and here she is writing a story where the ultimate afterlife is to be earthbound on the moors and that eschews heaven that doesn't care at all about being good mm-hmm. perfecting the soul that's what Nellie and Joseph are all about. And Nellie and Joseph are constantly, well, Joseph is always constantly spouting scripture in his weird way. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, and the terrible idiom he speaks. I just, I, frankly, I just skip everything Joseph said. And you will not lose anything out of the <laughs> That's book. That's true. Just, just, just a little hack, a little reading hack for you. But Nellie, who talks a lot in this book, she's always spouting platitudes, always saying be good, always blah, 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 about, you know, doing the right thing and being good. And I mean, in a really soppy, milk toasty way, not like in like, oh, here's a real good ethical core. Here's how to build a character. Or, you know, here's, I really understand you, Catherine, and here is what I care about you, and I think you should do this or whatever. She's yeah. just, she's kind of judgmental. Yeah, she, oh, she's very judgmental and very uh, platitudinous. So the thing that's so interesting then is that this Christian woman, Emily Bronte, writes this story, and the character who is the good character is intolerable. Mm. And the ones who are in there, basically, I think what Emily Bronte would think is that who are really acting from their souls she sees the soul as neither good nor bad it is 
and it is a powerful elemental force. Again, I was going to say this about Heathcliff and Kathy about their equation, is that if you look out, never been on the moors, but I'm imagining, or in when I've been in a storm, or I mean, you got the wind and you got the lightning and you got things contending against each other in nature and pounding against each other like a rock in the, the ocean or whatever you want it to be. And that's what they are. Simply they are. There's no morality to the ocean or to the storm. And that's that's one thing people say so much. Oh, I don't like that book. The characters are so unlikable. They're so horrible. Like they're just not fun to read. And and Absolutely that's true. That's valid. Yeah. Um, but that's that. It has nothing to do with the book. Like that's not what the book is about. That's not what these characters are. And when you said Zeus and Hera, I think that's perfectly apt in mm-hmm. the sense that these Greek, you know, Greek gods and goddesses in mythology are kind of horrible. Uh, they, you <laughs> two, know, two, they grant one, yes. they're fickle. They grant favors to mortals when they want to, but they kill people when they don't. You know, like it doesn't really matter who, what mortals or other gods get in their way. It's all about, you know, yeah, those passions and those desires conflicting with each other and being foils to each other. That that's very much. Catherine and Heathcliff and I actually really appreciated that about the book and I liked that 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 made me like the characters more that they weren't yoked morally in any sense right Um, and and it's very interesting if you read Anne Bronte's books she incorporates into the likable characters there is that kind of annoying morality that can almost be used as a plot device to put obstacles in somebody's way almost but it it can be very feels very milk toasty sometimes it's hard not for me in my mind not to relate that to like and being more functional in society yeah exactly exactly she doesn't have within herself in a way being torn apart and and really when you read about emily you get kind of sense that she wasn't at peace at all and she was catherine and she was running on the moors up until you know she got ill the other thing i wanted to say if you're ready to move on from this topic yeah i also wanted to say what today kathy and heathcliff could mean to us and some of the themes in the book because for me also as i was reading this i felt that emily being raised in the situation where she is brilliant she's powerful in many ways setting aside her possible agoraphobia because that may have come from the fact that there was no way she was going to be accepted in society no way because she couldn't hide who she was unlike you know, maybe her sisters who could ameliorate themselves to get along and, you know, be out there. They, they were both passionate women as well. I often feel that Kathy tearing herself apart because of these men really is the feminine, the woman tearing herself apart inside because she can't actualize and individuate in this society. Sorry, guys, but I gotta go there. It's about the patriarchy. About the fucking patriarchy, man. (laughs) Down with the patriarchy. But it is, in a way. I mean, and she was very lucky that she had a a, a really wonderful father who loved her and was very proud of her. But that was a gift. That wasn't a given. And even with that, she had hardly any choices. And the only thing she could do to possibly make money was sell her work, which is like selling her soul for her she did not she she regretted it she was very upset about it she second guessed it right and left unlike charlotte who was very pleased with with having success and so was Anne. Uh-huh. you know they were okay with it so i think that that i see that also in this book that this is her externalizing and writing about her own inner conflict of being unable to mold herself and tear herself down to fit in with what the requirements for a woman was at that time, or to marry and become the chattel of some man, no matter how nice the man. So we've we've pulled out some themes here, the romantic versus enlightenment. Is there anything else that we need to talk about in this book? 
Well, I mean, you can, and you can see why people are dropping dead left and right. We haven't talked about Isabella at all. I don't know if we need to, but yeah. she is, she becomes Heathcliff's wife and the mother of his son who comes in later. Um, and then we also, we should definitely talk about, I want you to give your thesis about Nellie because I feel like oh, that's right, fresh. Oh, right, right, Nellie, uh, yeah, yeah. I see Nellie as the agent of all tragedy in this book. <laughs> Nellie screws up right and left. She, I don't know if I should say, fucks up, but that woman from the beginning, and it's her platitude, I keep saying platitudinous, but you know, she just has a, a complete lack of imagination in terms of other people, a, a lack, I think, even though in the book she seems to have feelings and says she loves people, she has a lack of empathy for anyone who is not just like her. And in some way, I almost feel like there's this class thing where she she's the one as the underclass. She nurses the baby. <laughs> she does all the practical stuff. She takes yeah. care of everybody. When Heathcliff comes, there's no place to put him. The guy says, well, let him sleep with you, Nellie. You know, it's like that in some way, she is the undermining agent yeah. of the upper class. I can totally see that. Like, she's like, I don't give a about you you know and and with under the guise of caring greatly right and i think um you and you see it again and again in the book if you read it again you'll see again and again and again where it's something that nelly does or does not do that leads directly to the next conflict Mm -hmm. and the next problem and it's all information based pretty much yeah Yeah. she i mean she doesn't like hurt anybody or physically right which it's all information based which makes it seem very innocuous as she's the one telling the story like oh and then i ran here and i told him and then i went here and i didn't say anything but i saw heathcliff and and everything but yeah but and I, it and she, actually greatly impacts the plot and she says i care and she basically saying i cared so much oh i love them oh i want to take care of them doing the best i can it's like that's just from what nelly says but if you look at the result i kind of feel like i, I won't say agent provocateur necessarily but like but she but some, she is in a few of these cases she is yeah so class for, anger welling up underneath absolutely poisoning her uh and i mean not only is she like she's supposedly one of the family, she totally uh, has ha, kind of has them under her thumb in a way, in a certain way because she's behind the, the scenes when from their point of view doing yeah. all this stuff. And of course, the the pivotal place where she is destructive is that Catherine comes in and is telling her about Edgar and about how she's going to marry him, and she does not in that whole and it's a it's several pages long. She does not once tell her that Heathcliff is in the room, even when. She says, where is he? She goes, oh, he's in the stable. And, okay, let's just give her the benefit of that and say maybe she didn't even see it. But then she sees Heathcliff get up. After Catherine has said something terrible about him, she doesn't say, Heathcliff is there. Right, so Catherine She just lets him, him go out and she lets Catherine just keep talking and blah, 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 and finishing up the scene. And then all of a sudden, and then that's what tears them apart is because Catherine then cannot go and... Find him in order to explain, explain herself. Explain and, and apologize or whatever. And then later in the book, in particular, when Heathcliff comes back, she's... You telling know, Edgar that he's there. He's and there and he's to doing blah, Yeah, exactly. And then that's going to rile. And she knows it's going to rile Edgar up. Yeah. So Edgar goes down and he pulls out a gun and then they have a big to-do. And then this leads to Catherine shutting herself in her room while she's pregnant and not eating for three days. Then later when Heathcliff wants to take his revenge, and one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to force Catherine's daughter, Catherine and Edgar's daughter, who is the sole heir to the Grange, to marry his son, his sickly son, because then all of Kathy's property that she's going to get it from her father is going to belong to 
her husband because that's how property law works. And then the son can just leave everything to his father and the son is super sickly. So he's not going to live very long and they know that he's not going to live probably even a year. So that is his whole plan. So he's constantly trying to get the young Kathy to come over and hang out with his son and to get into the house. And he's, he's constantly doing all of these nefarious things. And the only way he can get into the locked wall or to get Kathy to come over to his house is to work on Nellie. So Nellie's always going, oh no, no, not, oh, oh no, I'm not going to. And then she does. Right. Every time. <laughs> She just knuckles under and figures, and then she doesn't tell Edgar, the father. She doesn't tell him what's happening with Heathcliff. Oh, she doesn't want to upset him. Or one time he yelled at her for carrying tales, so she's not going to tell him. And see, that is passive aggressive. Oh, totally. That's super passive aggressive because she knows darn well he would want to know if Heathcliff was hanging out with his daughter. Right. Because he, you know, it's just, and I actually started at one point in the book turning down the page every time Nellie. I would say screwed up, or shall we say passive-aggressively, did something destructive. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And that is... <laughs> that is the, the last three-fourths of the book. The <laughs> last two-thirds of the book, three-fourths of the book. Wow. Where, where she did something, did or said something that created a problem uh, that created damage. I was wondering what those dog ears were. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if anybody's talking about that. I felt like when you when you presented that to me, I was like, yeah, I bet you Nellie gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, um, because well, she's such a bore. Yeah. Although, although I don't know, this book has probably been parsed to its last breath. So true. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure there are people who have written about Nellie. I don't know if they've said that she's. Maybe there must be a, a Marxist out there who wrote about the class consciousness. Nelly, the yeah. Worker, yeah. There was a little bit about that in. There was some academic book we had on. I think Emily Bronte's works and. Uh, that that person did bring in the the sort of historical context of well at this time there was there was a lot of tension in Europe around communism coming up and that uh, maybe some people actually didn't like this book specifically like there were some people that were virulently against Wuthering Heights one person one reviewer specifically was very angry about it in the sense that it Wuthering Heights does kind of disrupt uh, the idea of ownership so they describe him as like dark-haired dark-skinned and so potentially and maybe no, they didn't say dark-skinned they said he was dark I think they describe him as maybe a little dark not super dark-skinned but a little bit Dusky. either way okay. yeah um, well, they describe him as looking like, you know, maybe he has Roma origin or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Roma or, uh, well, actually, and even in another book, I would, Irish. Irish, yeah. Because uh, the Irish were just... Uh, there, that was the middle of the Irish famine that it was being written, right? Or there were a lot of, like, starving people from Ireland coming over to Britain. Well, there there was that, but there was also the fact that, I don't know if that was when the Great Famine occurred, but there, there was always problems with Ireland because they were so oppressed. Right. But, and, but the British... The English, I should say, just excoriated the Irish. The Irish were the lowest of the low, to the point where when the Anglo-Irish would build their houses, I don't know if you know, know this already, but when they built their big mansions because they'd taken the Irish land and the English moved there and became Anglo-Irish, in the kitchen where the Irish people actually worked, uh, in some of the houses they built like this balcony where the like the woman of the house would come out and she would stand up on the balcony and give her orders for dinner and stuff because the Irish were such pariahs, they were considered so dirty and untouchable that she wouldn't want to come into the kitchen and wow. be on their level. No, I never heard that before. And have any contact with them. Yeah. And and I don't know that I'm not saying that was every house or every family, but that was part of the attitude 
Interesting. Toward the Irish. So for him to be even part Irish would be... Or linked, yeah, in some way. So And, and so this reviewer was so upset at the idea of not not the characters in the book or anything, but the idea of this like outsider, this potentially Irish or whoever character coming in and then inheriting this this land uh, from these landed noblemen and basically subverting the order of inheritance and like taking all this land and everything. Arguably, Heathcliff is really scummy about it and he's really reprehensible and everything, but he does, most of his plots revolve around inheriting everybody's land through collecting debts or marrying his children off or whatever. And so so it's kind of subverting the class order and the landedness of of the British. Should, yeah. Who should own the own the property. Yeah, what what's valid in inheriting land. What's very interesting, some more modern and I, I think given Emily Bronte and given what the book says he looked like, I don't think that he was part African, but there was a a, a very recent Wuthering Heights, which is listed in my in the show notes, that did posit that because mm. it was dark he was part African, and so the actor who played him was of African background. So he played that part. I didn't care for the whole Wuthering Heights period, but but it was interesting. I think it was Andrea Arnold was the director. It was an interesting um, sort of revisionist take. And not that there weren't black people in England at the time. There were plenty of black people there at the right. time. It's just, from her description, I think that they would have made more of it. Well, also, it seems, I, I don't know that Emily Bronte would have, like, just based on her life experience. Yeah, she wouldn't have thought have, of it, probably. Yeah. I mean, he could have been Ita- Italian or, right. you know, Spanish. Or, <laughs> anything it, would have been bad. Any, yeah. yeah, anything, it would have. <laughs> but I do think that there is, if not consciously in her mind, it reflects a certain, or, or is open to a certain interpretation, if you choose to make it, of class distinctions and class war. So that, according to this book that I skimmed, was part of what made it controversial at the time of publishing. Yeah, and probably Emily wasn't really thinking about any of that. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't know. You never know how brilliant somebody could be, but True. is there anything else we need to um, discuss of uh, this book? Other than to urge you to go see the 1970 Wuthering Heights. Yeah. And also the, the more recent one, I don't know what year it was, but it was within the last couple of years of the, of the BBC, I think it was a British series with Tom Hardy, which is very good as well. And Andrew Lincoln is in it as Edgar. I forget who played Kathy, but whatever. That one was good. It incorporated a bit more of this other stuff that happens in the book. Yeah, it, it, it's much fuller, has much more of the plot. Do we want to talk about the second half of the book very much? Or are we just kind of... I don't know. What do you think? I, I don't have a lot of passion for it. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. So at the end, Heathcliff never... I mean, because there's no morality to this book, he's never redeemed, except... I, I guess we, we should talk more about the ghost stuff. Yeah. Um, he's never redeemed. He kind of just fades out, and he succeeds in most of his goals of getting his heir to inherit all this property. And ultimately... The two, the two young people fall in love and united and they're going to get to inherit all the property and so all's well in a certain sense. But Because it goes back to the original families, the Aaron right. Shaw and the Linton family. And, and by the way, Heathcliff is a one-named character. He, he's Mr. Heathcliff or Heathcliff, so he, he doesn't have a last name. So again, that there might be, I'm sure there's been tons written about that, mm-hmm. being, being a nameless child. And, right. Um, and so, the, yeah, the two young people are Catherine's daughter, Kathy, and Hindley's child, who has been living and been raised by Heathcliff after Hindley fell into alcoholic degeneration and died, um, but who Heathcliff relates to a lot more than he did to his own son, and who he was Heathcliff was almost kind of proud of, or kind of you know. Well, he did. He had, he admired him and he liked him, but because he was Hindley's son, mm-hmm. and his vow was to take revenge on Hindley, 
and Hindley, he got that, and then he decided, well, that has to go to Hindley's son as well. The, the thing is, is that there are three young people, since you want to talk about it. Edgar and Catherine have a child, Kathy, Kathy. and she's fine. She's vigorous. She's complimentous. She's spirited, whatever, so she's fine. But Heathcliff hates her because she's half Edgar instead of loving her because she's half Kathy. So <laughs> he doesn't that's, really care. He only loves Catherine. It doesn't extend to her daughter. Yeah, there's nobody else. It's yeah. like, you know. And then he has a son named Linton, and Linton, his first name is Linton, and he's weakly and blonde, and so Heathcliff doesn't even like him. And he's half of the Linton because he married Isabella Linton, so he hates him because he's half Linton. He doesn't love him because he's half Heathcliff, right? <laughs> And then there's Hareton, who is Hindley's son by some Francis who you don't, she's, you don't care about She's her. just his wife. Just yeah. his wife. Uh, and Hareton is like cool and groovy and he's smart <laughs> and he's handsome and all this stuff. But Heathcliff, and Heathcliff likes him, but because he's Hindley's son, he has to degradate him and train him to be a nasty, brutish oaf. And so those are the three. What happens is Heathcliff maneuvers Kathy into marrying his son, Linton. Linton is really super sick and is going to die soon. Heathcliff is rolling the dice here because Edgar is also sick and he's going to die soon. Now, if Edgar dies first before Linton, then Edgar's property goes to Kathy and then Kathy's property belongs to Linton because the husband owns everything the wife owns. Now, if Linton dies first, then his plan is thwarted. So it works out that he traps Kathy, locks her in a room, makes her marry Linton while her father is dying. Luckily for Heathcliff, Edgar dies first. And Edgar, again, this is one of those things where you're thinking, okay, she's not in the real world. She's not really... Emily isn't. Emily isn't. Yeah, exactly. Emily's not in the real world because, let's face it, a man with a lot of property and money who has a, a da- an unmarried daughter who is like, I think she's 16 years old, is not going to leave her that property outright. That's going into trust. Okay, that's so there's a reality check there. But in this case, it's supposed to just go to her in what we call in fee simple. All belongs to her. And therefore, that means it's going to go right into Linton's pocket. And that's what happens. Then Linton dies, writing a will, leaving everything by force because of his father, leaving everything to Heathcliff. So that's how Heathcliff gets the Grange and all the property and that money. Now, Hareton is supposed to inherit Wuthering Heights because it belongs to Hindley. Heathcliff gambles with Hindley. Also, he goes around and he buys all of Hindley's debts up that he keeps getting into debts and putting mortgages on his property in order to fuel his drinking and his gambling. So Heathcliff buys all that. So by the time Hindley dies, Heathcliff owns Wuthering Heights. So now he owns all the property in the area, the two great houses, as they called it. So then what happens is Kathy comes, she haunts Heathcliff. Catherine. Catherine, yes. Catherine haunts Heathcliff. And he runs off into the moors, at least in his mind, after her spirit, and he dies happily because he's hand-in-hand with Catherine. And when he dies... He has no heirs, so we're given to to understand that the property is going to go to Kathy and Hareton, who are going to end up getting married, and they will own both properties together. So the right, the status quo, Ante, is restored. Yes. 
to the rightful class of people. And there you have it. Now you don't need to read the second half. And yeah. if you did and you were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what was all that back and forth about? That's what it was about. And that's pretty much it. So did we cover the second half sufficiently for you? Did you want to say more about it? I just am so find it so tedious. Yeah. I don't, yeah. But if you, you know, if you, if you found some nuggets in there, chewy nuggets of delicious literariness, literarity. No. Okay. Not that I can think of. And you may end up deciding to cut out that entire synopsis. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, it might be totally boring. It bored me while I was saying it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, maybe this would be helpful for some people or like, you know, enlightening, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think the first time you read it, you, you, you have to read the whole thing. But really, I would stop with Kathy's death, mm. pretty much. And Heathcliff howling and beating his head against the trunk until blood ran down his face. I know, so dramatic. Ah! I love it so much. So anyway, that's our, our take. Uh, did we? I don't think we left anything out that we wanted to say to you guys. You want to sign us out? So thanks so much for listening to Foibles. Yeah, we really recommend that you read this book. And if not, then watch the movie and watch mom's favorite version of the movie. First, and then you can watch any other version. <laughs> I have listed all the ver- versions I found uh, in the show notes uh, so you can see all the different versions. I have seen all the major versions, and I kind of gave my little two cents about them. You know, drop us a line and let us know what you think. Was this a book for you, or was this not a book for you? Yeah, really, for sure. That would be interesting. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Graham Graham